This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Hey everybody, I'm Randy, along with Andy. It's Wednesday again. That's the day we record our podcast. And the Wednesdays roll around fast, but I always look forward to them. So good to be with you again for this 30 minutes or so, Pastor Andy. 30 minutes? What are you talking about, Randy? It's going to be a 44-minute episode today. Um, Going for a record. (laughs) Going for a record. We haven't made an hour yet. So I don't think people are going to listen to us if we keep going on this like that, though. It's good to be with you, everyone. Yeah. Before we get started, we always like to do a sort of a soul check-in. Um, it's a John Wesley thing. It's part of the examination of pastors, and because I think John Wesley was genuinely serious about the condition of the souls of his pastors. Not that it was a test, but that he just wanted to make sure that the soul was being nourished and the soul was growing and, and flourishing, and so it's a good check-in. So how about your soul today, Pastor Andy? Well, my soul's good. I've had a pretty good week, and uh as I think about what my life's been showing me this week, uh, one moment that really sticks out is I went to visit a lady in the uh, hospice center, Heart to Heart Hospice, this past week. And uh, she's, of course, transitioning, getting ready to slip away into heaven. And anyway, I went in and visited this person whom I didn't really know that well. But uh, I walked in, and she'd been asleep and unresponsive for quite some time. But as I walked in, I introduced myself to her, and she woke up, and she smiled at me. And it was like one of those pastoral-type moments where you're like, I'm standing on holy ground right now, and this is just, well, miraculous. And so I came away from that meeting, uh, that, that uh, time to be with that lady, with a sense of uh, God's presence in my life. Yeah. It's great that you got that moment because you've probably experienced this too when you go in to see someone when they're transitioning. A lot of times they don't appear to be conscious and maybe they're not, but you always hear that, go ahead, you know, from experts that know, go ahead and say what you want to say because he or she can probably hear you. And so we take that on faith and we pray and we say what we want to say and we just trust mm-hmm. that they hear it. So you got a gift. Yeah, yeah, and and I've had that experience just like you talked about many, many times where folks did not necessarily wake up, but I've kept talking and we pray. And then a lot of times there's a loved one there with them. And so we'll, you know, the loved one and I will talk and and that kind of thing. But I just find those kinds of visits um, nourish me in terms of my own spirituality. Yeah. For me, it has to do with my grandmother. Um, I think about my grandmother, both of them, grandmothers a lot. Um, but I was paying particular attention to my mom's mom this week because I used my grandmother in the illustration for this week's sermon, and, and we'll get into that. But I always feel a tangible presence whenever I do think about my, my grandmother. It's more than a memory. I mean, it, it just really is. It, it is, I think I can define it as a presence because a feeling comes over me like I'm not alone, right? And so that's always, that's always good. Um, and I just happened to be dwelling on it because I, you know, I was in servant preparation. And so it wasn't that I was driving you know, down the road and something reminded me of her and, oh, okay, she's present. No, this was like sustained presence because I was in a sustained, sustained preparation for the, for the sermon. So that was good. That was, that was really good uh, for my soul. So, all right. So with that, let's, let's go ahead and move into what we want to deal with today. 
Um, if you've listened to our podcast over these last months, you know that Pastor Andy is in the middle of a sermon series on the 25 Articles of Religion. And But Andy takes a, a break from preaching every now and then, and when he does, uh, I have the opportunity to go into the pulpit and, and bring a sermon. And I'm a lectionary preacher. The two pastors that were my pastors before I entered the ministry were both lectionary preachers. And so that's who I am by and large. And so I always just open up the, the revised common lectionary, look at the lessons. Most of the time I default to the gospel lesson, but this time the epistle lesson captured my attention. And it's from First uh, Thessalonians. And I, here's where my grandmother comes in. Uh, and I'll, I'll hit some of the high points of my sermon, and, and you can interject there, Andy, and ask questions or, or share comments. But um, my grandmother uh, used to sing uh, to pass the time. She wasn't singing to her. She wasn't singing for anybody. She was just singing to herself. It was very quiet. And she would sing the song, Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon. Many will meet their doom. Trumpets will sound. All of the dead shall rise. Righteous meet in the skies. Going where no one dies. Heavenward bound. And she had such a um, sweet look on her face when she would sing that. And of course, she's singing about the second coming, right? The second coming of Jesus. And that's that's an Orthodox Christian belief, right? We believe, we, we, we say that in the Apostles' Creed and, and in the Nicene Creed that, that Jesus is coming back. But uh, she was also singing about, about a particular take on the second coming, which is known as the rapture. And, um, you know, most people are familiar with it. If they weren't familiar with it or if they hadn't grown up under it, then they, they were exposed to it through the Left Behind series of books and, and movies. And so... You know, that just, not to go into the all of that, but that's the idea that one day uh, Jesus will appear in the clouds and um, that the Christians will rise to meet him in the air and then they will go off into heaven and, and then those left behind will suffer seven years of tribulation and then the actual second coming, because Jesus theoretically didn't touch down that first time, the second coming happens after the end of those seven years and then those end time predictions all unfold from, from there. Um, so um, that's what she was singing about. But I thought, you know what? Um, this, this lesson from 1 Thessalonians, this is the text for that theology. Uh, those who subscribe to it, they pull in other texts, mm -hmm. uh, but it's the one that really looks like, okay, it really sounds like that's what happens, that Jesus comes halfway down puts on the brakes, the Christians join him, they put it in reverse and, and, and they all go back up into heaven. That's kind of what it sounds like. But then they take verses from you know Old Testament scriptures, from the prophets, from Daniel, from, uh, from Isaiah, from, even from the minor prophets, uh, book of Daniel, uh, Revelation, of course, and they put together this timetable of, of end time events. And I thought, you know what, M maybe I should you know, preach a sermon that is, you know, kind of a corrective uh, on that. And I said, I, I would never, I would never want to correct my grandmother because, you know, she believed that. And, and that's what I was taught growing up. And I think a lot of people who subscribe to that idea, that's as certain to them as the crucifixion and the, and the resurrection uh, themselves. And so I've come to learn that, um, you know, that's really not the case. It's really, it's really not good um, theology. 
But it is easy, and this is a really important point, it is easy and understandable to think that someone would find an evacuation plan from the world into heaven as an attractive idea. I, you know, I, I get that. So I'll pause right there. You might want to interject it at this point. And, but before you do, I, I do want to say that my main thrust was, uh, the point that I really wanted to make was, uh, recognizing Jesus's presence in the here and now mm-hmm. And not to and leave it to God all those end time things, mm-hmm. but because Jesus has already come once and has sent His Holy Spirit, and that can be a very tangible thing, then why don't we dwell on that? Yeah, yeah. Well, first I'd like to say, Randy, I thought you did a great job dealing with the very complicated subject that for whatever reason, people can get very emotional and and very passionate about this particular subject of the end times, the second coming. And uh, yeah, it's something that's really ramped up within the life of Christianity, as you noted in your sermon, in the last few hundred years. And I think one of the reasons why this particular brand of eschatology, the Left Behind series, the notion of rapture, is so appealing is because um, we live in a fearful world, and it is a theology that kind of fits with the fearful world when you're afraid of what's going to happen next, you're in the midst of uncertainty, and what the Left Behind series can do and what premillennial, technic- the technical language is what premillennial theology can do for a person in the midst of a, a world that doesn't make a whole lot of sense is it kind of gives you a very specific roadmap about, well, this is what's going to happen, and this is how it's going to come about and 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 so you take uncertainty and it becomes certainty and so what happens really when you start questioning some of that theology is people get passionate because you're pulling the rug from underneath them really and so I want to I just want to be mindful of that yes. as we begin to talk about it but the thing I found helpful about your sermon was that I call it it was really one of those sermons where you gave folks permission you're like Essentially, look, folks, there's there's more than one right answer when it comes to this. And historically, there's been a lot of different ways that we view it. Um, and there's some Christians today that act like there's only one way to see it. And of course, that's not very, that's just not true. Yeah. So the song, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. I used this in the sermon, and it speaks to exactly what you're talking about. The song was very popular. It was written by a, a guy by the name of Robert Winsett in 1942. So in 1942, we're in the midst of World War II, pretty awful cataclysmic event happening on, on planet Earth. And so Winsett lived through the Spanish-American War. He lived through World War I and World War II, and he was 66 years old. And as someone who's uh, knocking on the door, there, uh, I can testify for all 65 and 66 year olds that if you get uh, to that point in life, you've had you've had some doom, you know, you've had some loss, uh, you've had some pain, and you've had some some suffering. And again, I came back to the notion that yes, it is an attractive idea to think that we could escape from it, and that God has a plan for that, and that and if we could spell out how it's going to happen, then that would be that would be comforting. 67 artists recorded that Jesus is coming soon, starting in 1967 and continuing as recently as 2010. The Oak Ridge Boys, they put that song on 10 of their albums. It won the Dove Award, which is the Christian music equivalent of the Grammy, 
1969. Well, of course, in 1969, uh, you've got the Vietnam War going on. 68, you've got the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert uh, Kennedy. And so again, yes, it was a tumultuous time. I, you know, to think that you, we could just, uh, you know, evacuate God would evacuate us from all of that is is again, it's an, it's an attractive idea. Uh, but the but the truth of the matter is is that this rapture theology that you know some people know as you know the left behind story was really unknown in Christianity before the 1820s. It started. Uh, with one preacher by the name of John Nelson Darby in England, and it spread to the United States. And uh, we could go, again, very deep into that, but we won't except to say that Rapture Theology got its own college, its own translation of the Bible, and, of course, this this uh, theme song right here. So I kept asking myself, well, is it necessary for me to do this uh, you know, in a sermon? Because uh, it's not a Methodist uh, teaching. It's not a mainline uh, uh, teaching in, in, in Christianity. Uh, why should why should I do this? Why, why should I address it? Does anybody really care? Um, and I came across an article from a couple of years ago from Christianity Today, and it reported that only one-third of Protestant pastors share this left-behind end-times theology. And I thought, only? I mean, that's one in three. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's You and I don't subscribe to it, but the next pastor we come across, maybe, Maybe he or she does, so it so it's out there. And I again reiterated that I don't want to offend my grandmother or anyone else who holds this left behind theology. But we do have a responsibility uh, to be corrective, you know, when when we can and when we think that we have the basis, you know, for being uh, corrective. And so I just said that rapture theology, it's an invention that sounds biblical, but it's most certainly not. Um, As you mentioned, it's based in fear, and it requires a violent God and a violent Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. That's the thing. Why why did Jesus all of a sudden do an about-face? He wasn't wasn't violent in his first coming, and we're supposed to believe he's going to be violent in his second coming. Yeah, he's... Well, the way Left Behind presents him, as you said, Jesus is very different, and it's very scary. And I can remember growing up hearing sermons about the second coming where the pastor was like, you think he is loving then? Wait until he comes back. It's going to be scary, and look out, you know, and this kinds of things. And I'm like, well, oh my goodness, I better get my act together. Right. God's going to strike me down. And in a sense, I think maybe even God can use those fearful things, but in the long run, it's just not that helpful because if you're afraid of someone, whoever they may be, in, in this case, God and Jesus, um, it's hard to have a friendship with that with that person. And it's hard to relax in the presence of that person. And certainly there is anxiety um, associated with them. Uh, the thing that the, the word that you just used, I think you use the word fiction when it comes to these texts. And I'm sure that could be kind of alarming, yeah. especially when we're talking about biblical topics and people yeah. are like, wait a minute, you're saying the Bible's fiction. And the, the way I would describe it is like, I would say what we're trying to suggest is that we believe in these texts in a more than literal way. Mm-hmm. If you get bogged down in the details, then you kind of lose the overall point. And the big point I think the apocalyptic texts are trying to make is like the world, even though it is a scary place currently, we still trust God is taking it to a loving place in the end. 
And that's the thrust of the even the Thessalonian, the, the, the letter Paul writes to Thessalonica. That, that's the thrust of what he's trying to say. At the end of the lesson, it even says, therefore, encourage people with, with these words. Don't go make a movie to scare people. Don't go tell people they're going to disappear in the middle of the night and all that kind of thing. That's not what it's really saying. It's basically saying, hey, look, this God that you saw in Jesus, yeah, this God's going to hasn't forgotten about you and yeah. you can encourage one another with those words. And, yeah. and it's just, it's just fascinating how, what I think you talked about ISO Jesus, how people can isolate a certain passage right. or text and, and miss the point. But anyway, I, yeah. I find a more than literal approach to a biblical text and the, and the doctrines of the church to be very helpful sometimes because, you know, it's hard to literally and factually believe in some of the things that the Bible says, but even then, if you don't literally and factually believe it, even then, it doesn't mean it doesn't convey some sort of truth to us. And and I think that's the invitation, really, when we read the, the scriptures, is to try to read them in what I would call a spiritual way. Yeah, and when we start breaking down this first uh, Thessalonians passage, I'll sort of clarify what I meant by a fiction. But I, I decided, you know what, I think I will. I think I will preach on this text, and I think I will address this uh, uh, rapture theology um, because, you know, as I said in the very beginning, I've heard rapture-believing pastors refer to this very scripture lesson as the classic rapture text. There are others. They pull in scriptures from Daniel and other Old Testament prophets, which I've already mentioned, like Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, as well as the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and of course, uh, Revelation. And I said uh, a couple of Weeks ago, when I last time I was in the pulpit, I talked about how the church likes all these big words, and I said I'm going to use just two more big words on you because I'm going to just need to. So bear with me. It's uh, exegesis and eisegesis, which you just mentioned. And exegesis is serious Bible study, where the goal is to extract meaning from the passage, uh, to use all the tools that we have available to us. Because you know the Bible is hard to understand. It was written at a different time in a different culture in a different language. And so it's not always straightforward. It, you have to really look deeply into it. And so it's trying to extract out of it what the writer was trying to convey and how those who first got that message you received it. Um, I see Jesus, on the other hand, is inserting material into the scriptures. And that's where the fiction comes in, this insertion that instead of Jesus coming back all the way down to earth, that's the classic idea of the second coming. Jesus comes all the way back down to earth, whereas in rapture theology, he comes halfway down or he comes into the clouds and stops. The Christians meet him and they turn around and they go back into heaven. That's what's that's what I would call fictional, and then they build the stories um, around that. Mm -hmm. So, um, um, so let's talk about it. First um, Thessalonians four thirteen to eighteen, and I love it because it's the first; it's the oldest New Testament document. Uh, it's the first thing uh, that Paul wrote that we have. If he wrote something else earlier, we don't have it. Um, so it's a really cool read, and I recommended that people read it. I like to uh, I like to make that recommendation whenever we come up with a book that's short enough, because you know we read scripture in snippets a lot of times. I mean, of course, the lectionary is designed that way, so we just read a passage. But man, you get so much more out of it, and um, a lot of us don't have the time to read the longer books or or maybe the entire Bible. But a short letter like this, mm -hmm. and it is a letter, 
uh, it's really it's really uh, helpful uh, to read the whole thing. So that was the assignment I, I gave the folks. But um, and I said that um, you know it was written in probably forty. Uh, that's not certain, but probably right around 40 CE or, or AD, if that's what you prefer. And so it's earlier, much, much earlier than our first gospel. Uh, Mark, we think, is the first one written somewhere between 65 and 70 CE or, or AD. And so already these ideas are out there. You know, uh, you know they, they weren't new to the New Testament. Paul was already uh, talking about these issues. But I made the comment that a text without a context is just a pretext for anything you want to say, which is so true. So the context here is important. And the context of this passage is that Paul uh, was expecting the imminent return of Jesus, and it hadn't happened. They really thought that Jesus would have been back by now, mm -hmm. and it hadn't happened to the point where some of the people in the community there in Thessalonica were dying. And their loved ones who survived them, they're concerned. What's it like, Paul, what's going on here? Are they going to miss out on the second coming? So when they, uh, when they uh, related that concern, you realize that when Paul was there with them, he must have taught them already. When he set up that community, they were already talking about this, the second coming. So they know something about it and they're concerned that their dead loved ones are going to miss out on it. And so his whole point of writing was to address that concern. And what he said was, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. They, you know, they will, they will be included uh, when, when Jesus comes back and, and uh, they will be with us when we go out to greet uh, Jesus on his way back. So, um, you know, 14, 4.13 says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and right there is an early you know, Christian creed, Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. So right there we get the indication that Paul himself expects to be alive at the return of Jesus, he said, we who are alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. And so here it is. Here's the, here's the crux of it. Uh, 16, 416. For the Lord himself with a cry of command and the archangels call and with the sound of God's trumpet will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So there it is. And it really does on the surface sound as if the Christians will rise to meet Jesus in the air and they will return to heaven. Jesus won't come all the way back down to earth. But the classic teaching of the return is that Jesus will come back to rule on, to rule on, on earth. So that's the part that is, uh, I mean, if we don't like the word fiction, that's the part that the Bible really doesn't say. Why doesn't it say it? Because what he's talking about is defined by the Greek word parousia, which means presence. And it has to do with the emperor returning from war and the people of the city going out to meet the returning emperor uh, to escort him back into town. It's a celebration. Um, and so if you were familiar with that, if you lived in the context of the Roman Empire, this teaching would become readily available because it's an answer 
to the Roman Empire. This is, we're talking about God's empire. We're talking about the kingdom of God. And so the, the, it's just that the Christians are going to get the kingdom on earth. So it's an answer. You know, it's an answer to what they were dealing with, uh, with the Roman Empire. And it's not uh, an escape plan back into heaven. So right there's the crux of dealing with this particular way of saying things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's impossible to interpret these kinds of passages in the New Testament anywhere, really without putting it in, as you said, in its historical context. In this sense, though, um, it's a political statement, really. Yeah. There's no really, there's no way around it. Um, when we're talking about a kingdom, when the kingdom of God is coming, just think about the word kingdom itself. Well, what's a kingdom? Well, it's a political entity. And the early Christians believe Jesus was the king. You could say Jesus was the emperor. And Jesus is going to return in some sense and institute God's will for the earth. And so essentially, just real simple, in real simple terms, what they're saying in these moments um, of the apocalypse, eschatology, these kinds of things, when they get into this kind of stuff, they're basically saying our way wins. The Christian way wins. The yeah. Jesus way wins, not the way of the empire. And uh, once you kind of understand that, then it really starts to hit home what they're trying to get at. So the way of Jesus, of course, would be healing and the world of forgiveness and and peace. And the world of Rome was a world of violence and, and domination and oppression of people. And so, yeah, it's a very different um, way of seeing where God wants the world to go um, and even where God is going to take the world in the end. Yeah. I stopped at 4.16. Let me read uh, 17 just for the record. Then we who are alive, we who are left, we will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Um, so again, another, another thing we might hit on here is the literal and the figurative. Um, because, you know, some people will say, well, that's exactly the way it's going to happen, just exactly as it's described. Jesus will come back. You know, you, you look up to see him come back, and he'll be coming back. If it's cloudy, we'll see him come through the clouds that way. But that's, you know, is that the way it's going to happen? Okay, if you want to say that's the way it's going to happen, if you want to take it that literally, but where else would he come from in a, cult, in a um, you know, pre-scientific culture where they didn't have the idea of how the universe is set up, the um, the way that it, we've learned the way it is through through science. So they had this three story idea that itself might have been a device to, to understand because they certainly didn't know. But but it was you had heavens above, mm -hmm. the gods lived in the heavens and they were eternal, and then you had the earth below and human beings lived on the earth, and then you had. Um, Below, you, you had the uh, Hades, you had Sheol below, and that was the place of, of the dead. And so in the book of Acts, uh, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke, and in the book of Acts, both of them record Jesus' ascension. And so uh, we read where Jesus ascended, and the picture is that he's just ascending, he's going up this time, he's going in the other direction. Um, and so naturally, they would think that when he comes back, he's going to you know come back from the same place. Is that the way it's going to happen, or do we just accept the fact that he's coming in whichever form he comes? Well, that's in the Gospels. If you want to go to the Gospels, when the disciples ask Jesus these kinds of questions, his que his answer to them is like, look, guys, I don't even know. Uh, right. God only knows. Right. And, and I think that's the healthier approach 
when it comes to these kinds of things. We just don't know. Right. And you might as well be humble about it and try to uh, and just stop really trying to figure out something we really can't necessarily figure out. I, I'll just point out one obvious thing about this particular text in Thessalon- Thessalonians is like Paul thought that it was going to happen any day. Paul's wrong. And still so, wrong. still wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, if it's a literal, factual interpretation we're going to apply to this, then, well, literally, factually, Paul's wrong. And and so, what do we do then? Well, I think you look past some of that, and you kind of look at the bigger picture. And the big picture is God's steadfast love is is always going to be faithful and is going to continue to to win out in the end. And and so that again is the more healthy approach. the The big question ultimately comes down to though, um, how do you, as you suggested, how do you find the voice of Christ in your life today? Where do you see Christ at work in your life today? In a sense, when you're experiencing Christ here and now, you're exp- experiencing the end today because that's where you're going, right? Like it's it's a, I think the phrase is a realized eschatology. I'm realizing. The presence of God from where I came from, that sustains me, but also the presence of God where we ultimately go, we return to in the end. And so at the end of the second service, Randy, you talked about your grandma. And one of the things you said that really struck me and uh, hit home in a very positive way for me was like, um, you said, you listen for the voice of your grandmother and through that voice, you also hear Christ. And I just find that so helpful. Yeah. I've never put it that way before, but probably because I never felt it so strongly as I did. Um, as I said in the opening, um, I used my grandmother singing Jesus is Coming Soon as an opening illustration in the story. And so I found myself thinking more about my grandmother than I normally do. And so, I, as I said, I always feel her presence. I feel the presence of my other grandmother as well. Uh, there's just something about that 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 I just do. Uh, I don't mean I don't mean that you know I've connected to their. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to get spooky about that. I'm, you know, but it was a, a feeling, a calm, a peace, a presence. You know that came over me, and particularly this time. And this idea of connecting it to the presence of Christ only came to me after I had sat down from giving the sermon in the second service. And I was thinking about what I wanted to say in a benediction. And, you know, because I did have this overwhelming sense of her presence. And then I thought, well, that's that in some sense has got to be the presence of Christ. How else would Christ be present rather than through things that we actually get to come into contact with, like the people that we love or the places where we live or or or, or nature itself? Now, does that does that put me, take me theologically out of bounds? I I don't I don't think so. Not not if we, not if we really uh, take seriously the incarnation. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that was it. Well, the the creeds. If you want to go to the creeds, one of the things that the creeds all say is we believe in the communion of saints. There you go. We believe in that. And yeah. so, what do we mean when we believe in that? Well, the creeds don't necessarily spell it out, but. I think one of the things we can all agree on is that there are those folks in our lives that were faithful and they came before us, they taught us, they embodied for us what it looks like to live out a relationship with God. And in a very real sense, they continue to speak. And and the way you kind of phrase it Sunday is like, 
God continues to use them to speak to us. Mm -hmm. And how else would a universal God speak to us, but in a very particular way? And we talk about it all the time as Christians, like, well, we don't believe in religion. It's a relationship. Well, okay, let's do it. Then if if that's the case, that's the way God, uh, if that's the way God is, and I do believe that's the way God is, then of course, God's voice is going to continue to be heard through the voices of those that come before us. Yeah. Well, Luke had a wonderful story about this, and I'm going to get to that in a second. But I do think we ought to define um, eschatology and uh, even uh, apocalyptic, um, because the Bible is an eschatological book. I mean, when you read it, you realize that the the people of God, God's chosen people, uh, were the victims of injustice. Sometimes, you know, the Bible will tell us that sometimes, you know, they brought it on themselves. But at the same time, um, you know, empire after empire uh, beat up on them, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and Romans and others. And so they were crying out like, God, when are you going to fix this? When are you going to fix this? And their idea wasn't that God would come and obliterate the earth. No, they believed that the creation was good, but that God would come and destroy evil and violence and pain and all of that. And so they looked they, they looked forward to that day. So we see that hope in the prophets, uh, you know, during during the exile, you know, they're they're exiled from their homeland. And so, but they're holding on to this hope. And so that's kind of the basis for eschatology. It's not the end of the world. It's the end of the evil age that God will, that will God will come in and, and, and destroy evil. And then uh, the apocalyptic, that's, that's just someone who has a vision uh, of how this is going to happen. And it's going to happen quickly. And they use all of this strange language, which we're all trying to sort of, all the symbolic language, which we're trying to apply apply literally. So, but there's no denying that um, there, the eschatology is a real thing mm-hmm. and that apocalypticism, I mean, is a real thing. It's a, it's a genre of, of literature. So we do, uh, those are there. And Jesus, you know, some of his first words were, hey, the kingdom of God is near. That's apocalyptic. And yeah. all three gospels have apocalyptic sections. Yeah, they do. And in the Gospels and most, most of the New Testament, as you say, is very apocalyptic in nature. The word uh, eschatology, I think the Greek word is like eschatos or something. It's yeah, eschaton, eschaton, eschatos. Mm-hmm. It means last. Yeah. And then ology comes from the Greek word logos, and yeah. it's kind of like the study of the last. And and that's what eschatology is. To put it simply, though, like you're you're kind of like, well, where is God taking us? That's mm-hmm. what it is. It's the study of where is God taking us. Mm-hmm. And when that becomes the framework that you're thinking about it, then I'll use another phrase that often gets used in this context. You start to read the signs of the times. Yeah. And what I would suggest is rather than look at the signs of the times like as negative or uh, fearful things happening, really the signs of the times are about finding those life-giving and joyful things that are happening where God's presence is breaking in to the world. I mean, we're a Christian people who says the light shines in the darkness. Darkness doesn't overcome it, but I feel like we're more surprised by the darkness than the light sometimes. And as a people of faith who believe that this is where it's going, then reading the signs of the times means like, well, the lady I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Mm -hmm. she smiled. She smiled. And that smile was more real, more real than the powers of death mm-hmm. in that moment. And 
you go back to children and stuff where they're laughing and enjoying life and they have this vibrancy about them. Reading the signs of the times is about finding that kind of stuff as opposed to, well, just turn on the news. Oh, sorry, Randy. All right. <laughs> but but the negativity that we experience in our world today. Yeah. I wanted to get to um, Matthew chapter 24 because I said I was only going to exegete two of these passages. This one coming from the gospel, the, you know, the words of the words of Jesus right here talking about this. So when he's talking about the Son of Man coming, he says uh, that two will be in the field and one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together. One will be taken and one will be left. Wow, that kind of sounds like uh, left behind, doesn't it? But again, context is everything. A text without a context is just a pretext for anything you want it to say. That was verse 40. Verse 37 provides the context. Jesus says, For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so this is a proof text for the left behind theology. But look at this. The context is Noah and the flood. Who got swept away and who got left behind? The unrighteous got swept away. Mm -hmm. The righteous got left behind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can cross that one off as something we should take seriously in terms of this notion of the, you know, some people getting left behind to be punished and the, the Christians saved, you know, taken to, uh, you know, taken away to heaven. Now, I want to say this really, really sort of quickly on that. It brings up another problem. Like, well, then what about the flood? You know, what about the flood? That itself seems violent. Here's the way I look at it. I think it's perfectly natural if, well, let's just put it in real simple terms. If, you know, if I'm a, you know, let's just say I'm in high school and uh, a bully comes along and just kicks my butt, well, I am going to want to get revenge on, on that guy and I might get violent on that guy. And it would be understandable if I wanted to get violent, you know, and get, and get back at that person. And so I think that's why we get the kind of language that we get. It's not, I don't think this describes I don't think this describes God's anger. I think it describes a human anger. And if we had our way, yeah, we would come back and yeah, we'd create this bloodbath that we read about in, in, the, in the book of Revelation. But I don't think God, but I don't think God would. That's, that's my take on it. And, and, you know, like you were saying, I, I think we want to give space for it because it's there. There was a flood. Um, but, you know, you know, this whole idea of, uh, you know, retribution, that's a human thing, not a God thing. Right, right. And you're seeing how they saw it in the sense of how they saw God in the world. That's what the text kind of points to. But allegorically speaking, uh, back to the text with the folks disappearing, um, I find that helpful when I think about it allegorically, like the faithful are the ones that remain and the unfaithful the sinful people who are not living as they should. I, I don't, I'm careful. I want to be careful with the word <laughs> sinful, but they begin to fade away. And so think about that just symbolically. When you live according to the faith, you're standing on solid ground. You're real. And when you're not living by faith, well, you start fading away. It's not real. And the same kind of ideas can be applied to some of the stories like the flood. 
in a world flooded with wickedness, it eventually is going to get washed away. It's not the way God intended it. It's not real. Um, and the story of Noah's Ark is like, and God sustains who? God sustains the one righteous person, Noah, who's left. Now, and just, just this just in about Noah, he's not like a picture of moral perfection. Like right. most of the time you don't hear the next story after the after the boat parks on some dry land. <laughs> well, let's just not get into those details, but just right. go read it. Just yeah. go read it. It's it's complicated. Yeah. So I finished with this, you know, talk about burying the lead. I mean, this should have been the lead and I try to make it the lead. It is rather than wait, rather than work out these timetables, which really ends up being a ticking time bomb, rather than spending a minute on that in our lives, why don't we recognize that Jesus is among us and Jesus is present to us and Luke has a beautiful story of it. In fact, Luke begins his gospel by saying he's writing the gospel so that we might recognize Jesus. The English word recognition doesn't always show up there, but the Greek word, that is an appropriate translation for the Greek word that's used, that Luke wants us to recognize Jesus's presence. And then he tells that resurrection story in the 24th chapter known as the walk to Emmaus. I won't read the whole thing. It's a very familiar passage, but um, you know, these two, after all the events uh, uh, in Jerusalem, these two disciples of Jesus, they, they leave Jerusalem and they make their way back uh, to Emmaus. And one thing right off the bat, I think is very beautiful. Jesus told those guys to stay in Jerusalem and they left, but Jesus followed them and he didn't follow them to, to uh, discipline them. He followed them to be present to them so that they would eventually recognize him. So they're walking along. They don't realize it's Jesus. Uh, they finally get home and they say, hey, it's getting late. Why don't you come in? And so Jesus goes in. They break bread. You know, They have a meal. He opens the scriptures up to them. And all of a sudden, bam, there, there Jesus is. And there, there is this recognition of Jesus with them. And then when he goes on his way, they say, weren't our hearts burning within us? Maybe that's what was happening with me and my grandmother. Maybe my heart was just burning within me. Now, what could be better than that as an explanation for when Jesus is coming? Right. Jesus has appeared within you and and the experience of that moment, yeah, that line, weren't our hearts burning within us? I love that point in the Emmaus story. It's like they're saying somehow everything that he said, we just knew deep down within us. We already knew it was true. Right. He basically told us what we already knew was deep down already true. And so to become a Christian, I would argue becoming a Christian feels like a homecoming because you're coming home to the to the God that has always loved you and has always been with you and and walks with us and we find our home there. Yeah, even as we do look forward to the culmination of it, I think that we, you know, we hear this a lot. We do we do live in the in-between time. Jesus has come. That wasn't inconsequential. Jesus has come. There's already been the first advent of Jesus. Orthodoxy tells us that there will be a second coming. So we're in the now but the not yet. Evil hasn't completely been done away with. Violence hasn't been completely done away with. Heck, just look at the headlines and you know the news can just look at it today. But you know, that's where we're invited to join Jesus, whose spirit we have 
in getting with the program of eliminating evil and, and violence and injustice in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the language that I would use here is like uh, God through Jesus' death and resurrection has disarmed evil and injustice, their power over us. Because we look at those now in light of what happened on the cross, we look at those now and say, hey, this is not going to last. This does not have the final word. Um, Dr. E. Stanley Jones, the Methodist evangelist, has this great line. He says, to be a Christian means you evangelize the inevitable. You believe in the inevitable. What's the inevitable? Well, everything we find in Christ, right? God is healing, forgiving, loving. We're heading to the place of abundance and generosity. Our job is to proclaim the good news of those signs of those things and uh, believe that in the end, that's what's going to win out. Yeah. Okay, as we wrap it up, boy, this is a perfect transition. Speaking of the presence, um, you return to the Articles of Religion this Sunday, the sacraments. Yeah, so 60-second preview. 60-second preview. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about three very important words. What do we mean by God? What do we, what do we mean by loves? And what do we mean by you? I believe that the overall purpose of the church is to convince people that God loves them cares for them. And if it's not, if that's not the purpose, then it's a waste of time. The sacraments, worship, prayers, sermons are all meant to first convince us and then confirm for us God's love for each of us. And so Sunday sermon, I'm going to talk about what do we mean by God? What do we mean by loves? And what do we mean by you? And the, the sacraments are meant to be like pledges, um, signs, if you will, that point us in that direction and confirm that that reality is very true. Very good. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for for listening, and I hope that we haven't um, offended you. I had a I had a woman come up to me after the service, and she you know, she made that sign. She goes, you know, and she said, "Mind blown, mind blown," because she she was one who'd come up with the left behind, and so I'm in an email conversation with her right now. So I'm not trying to upset anybody, but again, we just come back to the love, to the love of God that we that we know in our hearts in in Jesus Christ. Okay, all right. And if you have any questions, just uh, you know, shoot us an email. But thank you for for listening. We've gone a little bit over today. We know you, maybe you don't want to listen to this all at once, and that's okay too. You can watch it in in section or listen to it in sections. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.